Hello, everyone. I'm very excited to welcome you to the latest episode of this new season of our Ipsos Brand Strategy podcast called Brand Talk, inspired by Dala Rademacher, where every few weeks uh, we will discuss an innovative brand topic with an inspiring guest on our show. Today, we're going to be focusing on the role of empathy in brand and in personal success. Um, I'm Chris Murphy. I'm coming to you from my hometown of Nashville, Tennessee in the United States. And as always, I'm here with my friend Hazel Freeman, our head of global comms research at Ipsos. You doing okay, Hazel? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Chris. All right. We'll see how you feel about that in a minute after I get to ask my opening question. All right. So, Hazel, we have had a series of Nashville-London arguments to start our podcast, pretty much a cultural battle royal between Shakespeare and the Beatles Elvis, Johnny Cash, the Beach Boys even got drug into it. But last week, we shifted to a little game about whether or not we could understand one another's local sayings, Nashville versus London. And Hazel baffled me with the phrase, have a butcher's. (laughs) So, Ravlin, I see you're laughing. (laughs) I know this phrase really well. (laughs) I took my best shot at it. I kind of got in the ballpark, but I was wrong. But now it's my turn. So, Hazel, let's play a game of sentence completion. All right. Okay. So in the southern United States, we will often begin a sentence with this sound. I'm all. If you heard me begin a sentence with that noise, could you give me an example of how that sentence might be completed? (laughs) Oh my goodness. Try the noise again. Amo. Imo. Imo. I can write it into the text box. Imo. I'm, so oh. not I-M-H-O, not in, in my humble opinion. Are we going for any kind of Imo, in my opinion? I'm going to tell you what I think in this particular No, but that was, that was a great guess. That was a great guess. But if I began a sentence with the sound, Imo, what might come next? You've got me there. You have got me there, good and true. I can't all think right. at all. What's so, coming next? In, in the Southeast, we have taken the phrase, I am going to, and we have shortened it all the way down to I'm a. So I might say to you, I'm going to go to the grocery today, or I'm going to go, I'm going to go to bed right now. <laughs> you, and and you, you have to appreciate the incredible conversational efficiency of this, right? We've taken four words, five syllables, and condensed it down to three letters, okay? So, on the other hand, can you imagine if you were somebody who grew up in another country, took the trouble to learn English, moved to Nashville, and somebody said that to you? Start saying, I'm all. I shall be using this on a regular basis from now on. Would that be text speak as well? Is this text speak before text speak even existed? No, in uh, in text, in fact, IMO would play out more like uh, what 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 you said. But uh, okay, okay. Well, all right. So that is such. It's that's an incredible learning. And and um, just this week, I used a word that I didn't realise was a British thing. I thought everyone would understand and because at this time of the year a lot of british use this a lot of british people use this word um it which is i referred to someone as having the lurgy and had like seven people with blank faces on the call and realized suddenly that 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 word means nothing to anyone other than british people um how would you describe the word 
Chris, does that make? Have you heard the no, word lurgy? Doesn't before? make any sense at all. What? what how is, would you just? How would you define the word Hazel lurgy? Oh, you're just feeling a bit un, under the weather. Should we try that one as well? Just generally a bit rubbish. Cold, flu, just a bit rough. Like a catch-all word for just yeah, being a just bit sick. Kind of, yeah. Not dying, but feeling a bit sick. So yeah. would that be L-U-R-G-Y? Yep. Okay. Well, I got the spelling, if not the meaning. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> okay. Well, Re Revly, thank you so much for playing our, our foolish games to, to, to begin this podcast. Um, so uh, this does bring us to our terrific guest, uh, who is a seasoned digital marketing vet uh, and an inspirational leader. We're so happy to welcome Raveline Beeston, uh, who is the regional vice president uh, at Microsoft Advertising based in the UK. Uh, so she's well equipped to take part in our, our national London wars. Um, so in her current role, uh, Revelyn has overseen uh, a huge expansion of the Microsoft advertising business in the UK, which is a fast growing ad business, which is fundamental to the core Microsoft strategy. She sits on the board of the IAB UK um, and also supports key diversity and inclusion initiatives through her board level work with Media for All. So thank you so much, Revelyn, for, for, for joining us and, uh, and for adding yet another uh, word to my vocabulary. I appreciate that so much. <laughs> You're most welcome. <laughs> over Thanks to Hazel to begin the Inquisition. Thank you. Thank you both for the introduction and, and thank you, Raveline, for joining us. Raveline, I know you've been at Microsoft for coming up 17 years now, is that right? That's right. Can you, can you tell us a bit more about your career journey? How have you got to where you are? And what are the key moments from that journey that we can all learn from? How did I end up there for so long? Um, <laughs> Uh, thank you, Hazel. Thanks, Chris, for having me here today. Um, I I actually started at Microsoft in 2006 and uh, as one of around 10 people making up the first ever search sales team that, that Microsoft had put together in the UK. Um, previous to that, actually, I'd spent a few years at Mindshare WPP in their digital search team and I joined there as a graduate. Um, one of the first things I learned, I think, going to Microsoft at that time is that from the outside, large corporates can often look like they've got everything figured out and they know exactly what they're doing. And what I quickly learned is that they're no different to any other business. And, you know, every business is on its own journey. And, and we were, of course, in, in that moment, a part of that journey. And, and it was a really interesting time because it was like being in the in the best funded startup in the world you know I was in this team uh that was literally we we didn't even have an insertion order template when I arrived we had to build our own IO template that we could send out to advertisers to to book revenue with us it was incredible um but look you know I've been in the ads or the digital side of the business at Microsoft for the whole 17 years that I've been there um doing different roles across different parts of that digital business and I've been there seeing that ad business from being the loss maker business at Microsoft to becoming the fifth largest business in the company a few years back. And so, you know, the thing I also learned is you can never underestimate the power of playing the long game. Um, it has certainly been an incredibly long journey for, for Microsoft and the ads business, um, but it has it's definitely gone to heights. So if anybody told me that 17 years ago, I don't think I would have believed <laughs> uh where we are today and so it really has i feel very privileged actually to have been part of that journey to have driven some of the things in there um it's been great to to, to see and look back on 
That's, um, that's an amazing story. How's that happened? How has that that turnaround happened within the organisation? I think that's the key is that there is no silver bullet. There is no turnaround moment. You know, it's a series of decisions of um, uh, being able to adapt, being able to fail, make mistakes, pick yourself back up again and keep the faith in the vision and the journey and the aspiration and feeling part of it. And there's just so much in there. I don't think I could give you one answer to say, you know, it was a it was this thing over here that did it. And, you know, I'll be honest, there were many times along that journey where me included, there were many of us that that didn't have the faith and didn't think we were really going to get to where the business wanted us to be or even that the that the aspiration was possible. Um, and then, you know, you see over the last few weeks, you'll have heard a lot about our acquisition of uh, Activision Blizzard and, you know, what that now means for the ad side of the business. I mean, it's it's it just keeps going. The momentum keeps on building. And so our journey is very much not done yet. And, and that's a really exciting place to be as well. That's really interesting to hear. How much of, of what has been going on do you think is around the, the company overall versus the leadership of the company? There's obviously been quite a lot of changes, well, one, one very significant change within the leadership to someone who I think Satya is quoted as saying, you know, the source of innovation comes from having a really deep sense of empathy. How does that play out within the organisation? Mm, I think it's really important that the right kind of leader is in place at the right time of the journey that the company is on and you know in the the Bill Gates era that's what the company needed in the Steve Barmer era that is what the company needed and now in the era of Satya this was very much what Microsoft needed and and I think that has been some of the success of Microsoft is recognizing where in the journey the company was and what was required from a leader in that moment to take it to the next level you know we always use this phrase of the thing that got us here will not be the thing that will get us there and so recognizing where you're at the point to say well this this was great to get us to this point but that same thing isn't going to get us to the next point. What is it that's going to get us to the next point? Having that vision and then being able to execute on that vision. I think there's very few companies in the world of this size that can do that. And, and I do think that Microsoft is one of them. Um, and so I think for the for the moment in time that Microsoft was in, such as absolutely the right leader, because what we knew and what we could all see is that it was the culture inside the company that was starting to limit what we were doing outside of the company. And he was very much grounded in our culture needed to change. Um, and I think that, you know, that's a, a really important lesson that I learned is how actually the culture inside of a company has a direct impact on the output and the outward success of that business. Um, it's no, you know, it's no secret that diversity, equity and inclusion has been the cornerstone of Satya Nadella's leadership um, and over time of, I would say, every leader within the company. And we have seen the transformation of Microsoft as a business over that time that he's been leading it. It isn't a coincidence. Hmm. So for me, although I think the evidence has always been clear that there's a lesson here for business leaders that DE&I isn't just the right thing to do. It's bloody good for business. Um I've seen it happen, right? I've seen that happen from the inside. And I've seen how 
it's not enough just for those messages to be coming from leaders. You have to put processes and structures and frameworks in place to enable others to emulate that through all the parts of the businesses that they run. Because if you, I mean, you look at Microsoft, we're 100,000 people more, 100, 150,000 people around around the world globally, right? You've got different cultures, you've got different geographic, you know, offices, you've got microcultures from different business units that operate in very different ways. And you kind of sit there and go, well, how can one person just come in and have this different vision about the culture and then change everything? And, you know, if I hadn't been in it, I probably wouldn't have believed that it was possible to do. But what I did learn is it's not just this fluffy thing that someone at the top stands yeah. up and says, well, hey, we're all going to do this. It's about changing your rewarding systems, the way you look at performance. It's about being very specific what does inclusion mean? How do you do inclusion? It's training people, it's giving them resources, it's being open to allowing people to fail and try and get better, but giving them what they need and supporting them on that journey. And it's also about turning around and saying, maybe this isn't the place for you. If if this isn't the journey that you want to go on, I respect that. And I have had that conversation with people in teams to say, if this isn't your journey, that's okay doesn't make you a bad person, doesn't make us bad people, but this isn't going to work out and this probably isn't the place for you. And, you know, these were people that were very, very good at their jobs. They weren't bad at their jobs. But what Satya made clear is nothing will come above the people that are going to drive the espoused culture, the aspired to culture. Nothing will be prioritised over that. And that's a really big, bold statement to make. But it makes it very clear to every leader what it is that they're being expected to do. And so I think that clarity on the vision is super important. Revlin, if, if we could go a little bit deeper on the topic of diversity and, and, and inclusion. Um, earlier when we introduced you, you know, we mentioned that you, you were playing a prominent role um, at Media for All. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that group, uh, why why it's needed, its objectives, uh, why that work is so important to you? Yeah, I mean, so there's, let me talk about me for first. I'll talk a little bit about why generally DEI work is so important to me. Yeah. And of course, MIFA is a big part of, of that right now. Um, but there's been a number of things that I've really had the, the privilege and the honour to be a part of. Um, so MIFA uh, has a mission to help black, Asian, ethnic minority talent to thrive in the media and advertising industry in the UK. Um, ultimately, the aspiration is to increase ethnic diversity of the media and advertising industry in the UK. And, you know, over the past three years, we really have built a strong community of diverse talent at all levels. Um, membership is entirely free for black, Asian and ethnic minority talent that are working within the UK media industry. And, and you know, Although it started off as a uh, observation and a need that was like, hey, you know, when you look around, do we think that our industry represents the audiences that we as an industry try to reach? No. But, you know, since then, we have an uh, all in census um, that has been running from the Advertising Association in the UK. Um, there was one released in June 2021. We've had one more recently. And the data is is very, very clear um, that the the representation as well as the lived experiences of people from minority ethnic backgrounds in the industry here in the UK is not where we would want it to be. You know, sadly, many from ethnic minority backgrounds have experienced racism in the workplace, in our industry, and around one in four are looking to leave the industry, an industry that they love. 
um, because they don't feel that they belong. And so MIFA wants to be a force for change that helps our industry overcome some of these issues. You know, we do this through events, forums. We've built safe environments for connection, sharing, learning, mentorship, trying to drive change. Um, and really through three very clear pillars of recruitment, retaining and rising. Um, and so that's kind of like a, a bit of a brief on, on what MIFA is and why we exist. And, and, you know, what I can say is there is. I wish a MIFA had been around when I was early in my career in the industry. You know, my own experiences tell me that this is very needed and not just to work on once people enter our industry, but we also go into schools to a lot of people from the ethnic minority community don't see advertising as a future career. It's not even something that they're introduced to. And so we're trying to start early and go into schools and talk about um, people from our community being within um, this industry, thriving within the industry, enjoying the industry and inviting others to come in and be a part of that. So there's there's, you know, happening from all levels. Um, the other thing that we really focus on is it's not just about entry level, but a big challenge we have in the industry is really seeing diverse talent at the most senior levels of our industry. And so we have many of the very senior people within our board and, and our community mentoring kind of mid level um, people within our industry to help them to make that next big step so that we can really increase representation at all levels within the the, uh, the advertising industry. Interesting. And really, yeah. I just want to make sure I heard you correctly on something. Um, did you say a quarter of people are looking to leave the industry not because they soured on the job function, but because they feel they don't belong? Yeah. Is that that's a really scary statistic, isn't it? Are you seeing signs of that changing? Uh, so actually, the latest survey just closed. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping <laughs> that we do see some changes in that, but we'll happily share uh, once we get results from that. Yeah. Um, I'm guessing like you, you're aware of, of some individual kind of success stories, as it were. Have, can you give us an insight into any of those areas that you feel, yes, we're making a difference here. Yeah, I think um, I mean, I can speak from my own personal experience. I have a number of mentees on who are in the community. And I think the where I'm finding the most fulfillment, actually, at the moment, I mean, there's lots of different ways, but um, is 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 helping people who are kind of at that middle you know, kind of middle management or just coming newly into senior roles within the industry who don't have role models at the kind of the C-suite level within their teams, um, helping them to understand what they should be pushing for and asking for. You know, a lot of the time um, I've and I've heard this firsthand where some people are so grateful to be in the position that they're in because they don't see many people who look like them already at their level and so they feel this kind of honor to be there that they're not pushing actively to say well no actually I should I should be in that role up there as well you know I should be partner I should be CMO I should be and it's just what's been incredible is just seeing the impact of someone sitting there and saying to somebody that job should be yours. Why have you not gone for that? 
oh no, I don't think I'm ready. I don't think I'm ready for it. Why don't you think you're ready for it? What would make? And it's just those seeing the impact of a really tiny comment like that on someone who goes, oh, you think so? Yeah, you don't. Yeah. I don't know, you know. Why not? Why should I do that? And I've seen some, you know, I have a, a mentee who who did do that and I coached her through it and um she got this incredible role and you know, she it was I think for me that's where the success comes from is just seeing that it's tiny, tiny, it's not it doesn't even have to be massively sweeping things. It's just having someone else to talk to who you connect to that feels like someone that understands you um just the impact that that can have on somebody's confidence and their ability to put themselves out there and take a risk and not be afraid to fail or not be scared of the no you know um those for me have been have been the real moments of like light bulb moments and i think also seeing the connections between people so like i said we have a we have a huge community now of um of people um lots of events that go on just to get people together and talking and you just see like these these amazing sparks when people like oh my god you're just like me and oh you're an agency too and you're you know you're doing this thing too and it's you just cannot underestimate the sense of belonging that it gives people and for me it's such important work. Can I take you back to something that you said earlier on when you were talking about Microsoft in fact you were you were saying that that people really need to understand you know what does inclusion mean changing rewards and so on one of the phrases you used was how do you do inclusion I'm going to ask you that question how do you do inclusion yeah so yeah when this was so interesting so when we first started when Satya first kind of came on board and we were doing all the stuff and as a as a manager there I was kind of sitting there going well you know I, I want to be inclusive and I want to do all this stuff but a how do I do it and how do I know I'm doing it well how do I measure if if it's working and what's working it all felt like very you know fluffy and you know we needed to make it tangible and this feedback was kind of coming from everywhere and so Microsoft worked with this um, a third party consultancy firm um, and created this this program called the 10 Inclusive Behaviours. And it was really great. I have to say it was groundbreaking. Like for me as a manager in the organisation, I had never seen anything tangible that I could grab hold of and go, well, if I do this, that means that I'm doing inclusion. And that's what this really did. Mm-hmm. Um, and the behaviours really went from I mean it was some of it was um what you would call you know common sense and then there were other things which you were like oh right okay I didn't think that Mm. was you know that was something I should be thinking about you know examples like um making sure everyone's speaking up in a meeting which I think we all probably do now but back then you know I'm talking this is kind of like eight years ago it's not something that you would have in, you know instinctive instinctively have thought of now we talk about it a lot and I see so many people make an effort if you're in a room and you can see one or two people have not spoken up at all I see people all the time go hey you know did you have something to add I didn't hear you say anything or you know uh, being mindful that some people don't like speaking in the moment and they would love rather have an opportunity to email after with their thoughts and that's okay everybody yeah. doesn't have to do it the way everybody else is doing it um and so uh, there was another one around um, if you if you have a strong reaction to something, check yourself. So, for instance, so by the way, when we did do the 10 inclusive behaviours, 
there was also a whole training program launched around um, a program around each behavior and what it meant and role playing and trying to put yourself in scenarios where that behavior might come up so that it really made it kind of real about what it meant. So this this one was a for me actually one of the most interesting ones, which was if I have a strong reaction to something, I need to be curious and ask myself the question why I reacted that way. So you ask yourself questions like, hmm, that person over there who I'm really good friends with, if they had said the same thing, would I have reacted in the same way? So is it is it the is it the comment that triggered me or is it the person who said it that triggered me? Because then there's two different I need that helps me understand what I'm dealing with and what I'm learning about myself in this moment. If it's the person, then there's something else going on and I need to be curious and figure out why. And if it's the comment, then I need to understand why did that have that reaction in me? What is it about the thing mm. that that person said that made that reaction? So what I learned about this whole piece around the 10 inclusive behaviours is it's 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 more introspective, actually, than it is what you're doing on the outside. It's, it's constantly asking yourself the question, why did that? Why did it happen like that? What, did, what is what is the learning here for me? Is there something that I can take away? Um, and it really was one of those things that. And I know this sounds sounds like really profound, but I feel like it made me a better human being generally, because you don't just leave those things in the office. Right? Once you start doing those things, you start to find yourself doing them everywhere all the time. Um, and so, it, you know, it really did have quite a profound impact on me, not just in in my professional life, but also personally and and how I approach situations and how I looked at things and um, it helped a lot of us actually across the company think about what inclusion really actually means it's it in itself is such a diverse term actually Mm -hmm. and it can mean so many different things to different people but what the 10 inclusive behaviors did is it focused quite Uh, you know quite deeply on the professional environment like what does inclusion there mean although we did you know lots of work around empathy as well at the same time so um started some workshops on Brené Brown's um book Mm. around empathetic leadership and so um brave it's called brave circles um that was pretty deep uh you know set up groups of people who would read the book and then come together talk about what empathy means them what does empathetic leadership mean that's another thing that Satya was really big on is that you know leading with empathy um and be brave is actually one of those 10 inclusive behaviors as well interestingly to create an inclusive work culture each person must deal with the discomfort of change Mm -hmm. and take the risk of challenging the norm you know uh so yeah just it was backed up the whole thing was backed up with tangible actionable things that people could go away and do and i think that really was the key to the change that's great Rathleen, thank you so much for sharing all of that um there's there's so much material there uh, that that we can all take away and and apply uh you know one of the things that you said um in terms of the the 10 inclusive behaviors um and you, you mentioned it kind of a hybrid of common sense but you hadn't really thought about it It was just the bit about being sure that people speak up in meetings and you hear from everyone um i feel like um especially uh, since a lot of people are still uh leaning on teams environments a lot of work at home activity um you know ever since 2020 um I, i feel like a lot of younger people tend not to speak 
in in a lot of these larger kind of teams of gatherings um, that, that that we've attended. It tends to be kind of the 40 plus crowd that that's carrying the conversation. Um, and and often there there will be 10, 12, you know, uh, younger people on on, on the call um, who who are aren't asked for their opinion and, and are aren't offering it. Um, and I guess for, for me, the, the definition of diversity extends to age, right? Um, and we want to be sure that that uh, we hear from everyone, uh, from, from every age group. And I just feel like it's something we've lost a little bit over the last three years. Is is So we are trying to do some things here to make sure that we, we bring, you know, that the, the voice of youth, you know, into the team's world. Um, and I, I don't know if you've observed that at all in, in, in your community or not, but, uh, but it's certainly something I've seen, you know, in our client calls and our internal calls here over the last three years. So I'm, I was happy to hear that major list. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, with that, it's a really good point because, again, it comes down to inclusion of channels that feel comfortable for different yeah. people. And I and I and I, I do think that for the 40 plus crowd, um, <laughs> which includes me, um, calls are the way for everything. Right. But actually, <clears throat> If you speak to younger people, that isn't necessarily yeah, yeah. the channel or the medium that feels conducive and creative and interesting. Mm. And, you know, and I've been battling with this myself with a large team and across two different offices and thinking how we do this and, you know, trying and testing teams, chats and channels and different channels mm -hmm. for different topics. So, you know, if someone's got a, a different interest. There's a there's a channel for that. And. Um, we're learning as we're going along as well. You know, some things work, some things don't work. Uh, have a celebration channel on a Friday. So on Fridays, everybody gets to say something you know, they're really proud of from the week, but mm -hmm. it's not on a call. They're just writing it down and share and tag people and doing runs. We, we do a 5K run in the office on a Tuesday afternoon. So trying to just think of different ways of bringing people together yes. that weren't necessary, I think, before pandemic. Because yeah. we was we we could so easily rely on physical proximity, and right, right, right. the thing that I'm trying to challenge ourselves with is to say, just because that worked then doesn't mean it's the only way to make things work now. Yeah. It's one way, and we got really used to it because it worked really well for a really long time. But let's challenge ourselves to think: what are the different ways of building culture that doesn't mean just physical proximity? Because sure. you know, working in a multi-geo organization, there are many of my peers who never got to have their teams in one place anyway. Like they were managing teams across lots of, and, and they found it easier moving to this world, by the way, than some of us who, you know, most of our teams were in one location and we were always in the office together, and there was banter, and there was this, and there was that, and. You know, now we're having to find ways of replicating the way that that felt rather yeah. than that thing. Um, and yeah, I, 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 Chris, I'm not going to sit here and say we've cracked it, but we're like testing and trying different yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, but you're trying, what right? Sticks no, and then I, taking it from there. Yeah, and I, I think it's great that you know you you've acknowledged that uh, different types of folks like to express themselves or are more comfortable expressing themselves through different media or outlets or vehicles, right? Um, and, and and ensuring they uh, that they get that opportunity. I think that that's wonderful. And you know, Revely, we, we've covered a, a lot of ground here in, in the last half hour. But um, if if I could ask you um, if if you could sum up uh kind of one big message that you you want to be sure that our listeners walked away from you know um, after our time with you what, what would that one thing be how you want 
your audience or your customers to see you has also got to be true inside of your organization. Mm. I think that's a one big thing that I learned. You know, if you want to be authentic in the messages that you give to your audience, then you've got to be doing the work yourself. You've got to reflect yeah. that in your own organization. And when I see things or brand messages fall flat, a lot of the time it yeah. is because that connection is not there. That's brilliant. How you want to be seen has to be true. <laughs> right. Um, no, I, I absolutely yeah. love that. Um, and th thank you, uh, Revely, for all the time this, this morning, for the gift of your time and, and counsel. And um, I, I know our listeners will, will enjoy this so much. And I, I am going to try to string together a, a few other key learnings into one sentence. And y'all tell me if I got this right. I'm going to be feeling a little lurgy. So will you have a butcher's at a draft presentation I wrote? <laughs> no comment. Not, not quite. <laughs> not quite. We'll come back on that one, shall we? We'll come back on that. <laughs> Feeling a, right. like a god of energy. Yeah, uh, never mind. Roughly, Hazel, th thank you so much for a, a wonderful conversation on the role of empathy, uh, the importance of DNI. Uh, I think some really pragmatic counsel on, on how it can be applied in an organization. I love that that closing comment about you know how, how you want to be seen. Truly needs to reflect you know what's really going on within your walls. Well, that was terrific advice. So thank you for that. Uh, so, Hazel, that brings us to the end of our 10th and final episode in this season of Brand Talk. And I think reflecting back, we've had some fabulous conversations with some really inspiring guests. Uh, what would have been the highlights for you, Hazel? Oh, goodness, there's, there's been so many. Um, I, I particularly loved our first conversation, I have to say, with David Robson, where we talked about the expectation effect and how when you when you're set up to expect something, you often find that to be the case. Um, I don't know if you remember, he gave us that example of people claiming to be able to hear more clearly because they thought they were wearing high end headphones. And actually, they were just <laughs> they were just the same as everyone else's. But that's just such good advice. And I, I've, I've certainly observed it to be the case in my personal life as well as professionally. And that's what's been so valuable about that, really. The importance of language and, and setting expectations in a particular way to guide people's responses and their experiences. Absolutely fabulous advice. Yeah, um, I, I also like Hazel Woody, uh, you know, has written and talked about uh, the alcohol alcohol effect you know, with, oh, yes. with people, if they think they're drinking something alcoholic yeah. they'll behave completely differently and vice versa I, I love his stories there it's great stuff absolutely crazy and I love what Jodie had to say as well Jodie Bilney she talked to us about all sorts of things but but the line that really stood out for me there is no tomorrow without today so that importance of the short term and the long term short term outcomes long term benefits oh great what about you what, what's particularly stood out for you yeah, with Jody, we had so much to talk about. We ended up turning it into a two-parter, mm -hmm. uh, but she she did have some great stories, and uh, I especially remember how she talked about the value of taking rather extreme measures to literally walk in the shoes of their customers, and how that kind of extended role play really helped to build empathy for their uh, their leadership team. And I'll never forget Josie Paul and how he spent all his early days at BBDO uh, just sitting in coffee shops, listening yes. to people talking uh, about what 
what's important to them. Again, just a really nice example of, of empathy in action. And uh, and then, of course, uh, Enrique Cornish uh, talking about the balance between science and art and uh, how, how all that has to come together um, in, in brand building. So, yeah, lot, lots of inspiring, just brilliant conversations. We're so grateful to our guests. And um, although, Hazel, I got to say, um, I won't be forgiving you anytime soon for that dismissal of Elvis in the Battle <laughs> of the Brands. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all hits, all hits. <laughs> they have, oh, goodness, they have indeed been some really brilliant insights, really fantastic experiences that our guests have shared with us. I think it's been a real privilege to have spent time with them. Um, I guess, given that we're, we're coming to the end, I'd, I'd also like to thank our producer, Joe, for his support in getting this series of Brand Talk out. And and thank you, our listeners. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this series as much as we as we've enjoyed making them. Brilliant, brilliant set of episodes. And and thank you, Chris, for for sharing the journey with us. And um, and as you would say, talk soon. <laughs>